Audio Jungle. Audio Jungle. with Emily Chang. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour. Robinhood is launching an index of the top stocks traded on its platform. Will that drive more retail investors to it? We're going to ask a top Robinhood exec. Plus, NBA champion Andre Iguodala talks to us about what he's taking from the court to venture capital. My conversation with the basketball star about everything from diversity in tech to NFTs and sports betting. And we all know about bored apes, but what about Moonbirds? Is that one new to you? We are talking to Proof Collective's Kevin Rose about the future of NFTs. All of that in a moment, but first I want to get a look at the markets and tech driving a strong end to the week in equity stocks. Also a big pop for Bitcoin. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow here to break it all down. Ed, happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. Um, real risk on sentiment to end the week. You look at the Nasdaq 100, very tech heavy index, of course, having its best day in a month up 2%. Some of those riskier corners of the market, I'm looking at meme stocks, I'm looking at non-profitable tech, also making gains throughout Friday's session. Bitcoin buying into that as well, as you said, a big jump from around 19,000 US dollars per token through to $21,000 per US token in a single session. That's the what. The why is harder to understand. You come with me into my Bloomberg terminal. We notched our first weekly gain on the Nasdaq 100 in four after three straight weeks of declines. It is its best weekly gain since July. At the same time, we do see the dollar pulling back a little bit. This is the first weekly decline for the dollar in four. And you see that gain in equities correlating pretty closely with that. That's potentially the why, of course, the market very focused on the Fed and the outlook for higher rates. Only really two stock-specific stories that I'm looking at this Friday, the first being DocuSign having its best day since May following strong earnings and strong performance in the most recent quarter. And the other one I'm really looking at is Robin Hood. Big gain on Friday, news that they're going to create this index of top picks, a top picks index of customers' favorite stocks. Em. All right, Ed, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that right now. Robinhood, as Ed mentioned, announcing a new index. This will offer a snapshot, a monthly snapshot of the top 100 stocks its users are holding with the most quote-unquote conviction. Company says customer conviction in a stock will be measured by how highly concentrated it is across portfolios. Robinhood head of investment strategy, Stephanie Guild, joins us now. So talk to us about the methodology behind this, Stephanie, and the end goal. Yeah, I think, you know, we've brought in a whole new generation of investors, or we helped do that, right? Over 20 million investors. And with it came a narrative that wasn't fair. 
Um, you know, we're not just, we're, our investors are not just meme stockholders. And so when we looked through the data, we saw that there was actually a lot of really interesting themes, and they are holding on to, or investing in things that are um, things that you and I might invest in for the long term. Um, and so we wanted to bring that narrative and, and be able to show it to not only the world, but also give information to our customers about it. So some of the top stocks are some of the things that we think of as quote unquote meme stocks. What do you think has been unfair about the discussion about what's traded on Robinhood's platform? Well, I think when you also look at the other ones, right, you've got Amazon, Apple, um, Google's been at the top. There's a lot of companies that are in our daily lives, and that's no different than generations of investors have been investing in, right? Like the, the things that you know and use every day. Um, I think the other thing is that you, you, when you look through a lot of the data below the top 10, what you do see is, for example, um, a theme of investing in electric vehicles. And if this year has not shown you anything um, about the importance of adopting electric vehicles over time, I don't know what, what couldn't. How do you expect investors to use the data from this index? I think for them, it's just a way to say, like, what are investors or customers um, or people like me investing in? What are, you know, how are they positioned relative to me? Um, and right now, it's just going to be a snapshot on a monthly basis, but there may be other ways that we can offer it to our customers to help inform them in the future. Right. That was my next question. I mean, could we see a, a you know, weekly, daily, hourly um, list of the top 10 or top 100? I don't know if it's going to be updated that often, but I think we could in the future <laughs> potentially bring it in app, for example, and share it with our customers. Um, if you own that particular stock, you'll see maybe perhaps what the weighting of that stock is in our own index, um, and maybe even compare your performance to it. You mentioned electric cars. Talk to us about some of the other early data that you're seeing. What are you learning about investors from this data? I think other things I've seen over time, especially when we look back at the history of the index, it goes back to about January 2020, um, is that our customers have been relatively good at timing some of the more tactical uh, things that have been out in the market. For example, in, um, you know, in COVID, they were investing in um, the Pelotons, for example, and, and the Zooms. Um, that has dissipated quite a bit. They were investing in uh, mortgage companies you know, when, when interest rates were super low and uh, you know, the housing boom was happening. They were investing in the likes of Rocket and Wells Fargo. Um, a lot of that stuff has dissipated in the index. And what they're investing in is, I'd say, stuff that's sort of longer term for the future. Um, a lot of, for example, financial services companies are not necessarily, you know, all the, the banks that have been around forever. It's a lot of some of the new, um, you know, new ways that we might see finance evolve. And that's because our, our customers are, you know, 32 years old on average. Um, and so they have time and, and why not invest in things that, you know, longer term can help build wealth. So why introduce this now at a time of a lot of uncertainty in the market going into an economic downturn and, you know, obviously a lot of questions about how the platform is used? 
I think we're, we wanted to do it because one, as I said before, like the narrative has been unfair. Our investors aren't just making you know crazy YOLO decisions. A lot of them have learned from this re recent downturn and are turning their eye toward how how can I build long-term wealth for myself? And our platform, you know, really helps you get started uh, with that. And we want to grow with our customers. And having this information available to us and being able to track it can also help us um, understand our customers better and, and give them what they need over time. All right. Uh, Stephanie Guild, Robinhood's Head of Investment Strategy, will continue to track those uh, now that they're out. Thank you for joining us Thank to you. explain. Coming up. How venture capitalists are changing their strategy amid a market downturn. That's next. This is Bloomberg. downturn is slashing startup valuations leading to smaller IPOs or no IPOs in some cases and less venture capital activity. How long does it last? Amber Bhattacharya of Maverick Ventures, Managing Director, joining us now. Amber, how long do you think it lasts? I've heard two to three years for this downturn. Well, great to have, great to be on the show, Emily. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I wish I had that crystal ball in terms of how long it, it will last, but we're certainly in the middle of it now. I think the the catalysts have been, you know, the the raising of the interest rates. Uh, I think part of the bubble being popped that we were in last year, but I think it also presents an opportunity for a lot of startups, um, particularly ones that have have good balance sheets, ones that actually have great unit economics, and I think that's where a lot of folks are focusing now is you know are there real fundamentals that are driving business progress and that's where i think the attention has shifted away from high growth high burn and other things that were really being funded last year so i've heard massive layoffs coming valuation write downs what we've seen so far isn't the least of it would you agree i, th I think it started i think in, in the beginning of the year there was a big wait and see attitude. You know, would this be a temporary blip? Would the would would the market snap back really fast? I think in the second half of the year, particularly post summer, I think reality is setting in. Uh, I think we have seen many startups take down their burn rate, both in terms of layoffs, uh, contractors, real estate costs, things of that sort. I think secondly, we've seen a lot of companies shore up their balance sheets. Uh, and while they do that, they're they're saying, hey, you know, the, the the path towards profitability is now much more important than the path towards higher growth. I think the and then third thing, and you mentioned valuations. I think I think there's a reality setting in that oftentimes for maybe not the top companies, but for the average startup, uh, you know, there there's a reality check on the market. And I think what we're seeing there is for a lot of uh, a lot of companies that are good companies with good unit economics and good fundamentals, they're saying, hey, we want to raise a more modest amount of, of money at a more modest valuation than last year. And that, that that's a great path. And if, But for companies that need money, need capital, I think that's where you're starting to see 
valuation uh, declines, structure for deals and things of that sort. Is there a lot of dry powder just sitting on the sidelines because of all these funds that raise so much money and now don't have as many places to deploy it? And are VCs waiting for valuations to fall further before getting in? There is a lot of dry powder. I think that's when, when, when you talk to a lot of investors in the private equity space and in the venture capital space, uh, a lot of folks were very fortunate to have raised in the last few years, the pace of capital deployment has slowed down. I think there's two things that are happening um, right now, and I'll, and I'll bifurcate the early stage market and the growth equity markets. In the early stage market, I think business there has continued um, you know, as, as, as expected. Um, there's great innovation happening out of a lot of um, scientific labs, out of a lot of uh, engineers who are leaving, you know, leaving other startups, leaving, you know, the big corporations who have their ideas. And that just continues at the normal pace. Um, and there's lots of research saying that in these moments of economic downturn are the time that more resilient companies are being built. And so that that's one, right. one thing we've seen. I think on the other hand, for, for more of the kind of the growth equity, you know, growth, growth stage companies, um, you know, I think you are seeing, um, you know, you are seeing the pace slow down there. I think people want to see better fundamentals and unit economics than, than they saw before. The hedge fund Tiger Global was such a big player in, in Silicon Valley over the last few years. It's also been blamed for inflating a lot of these valuations because they had a lot of money to deploy. What do you make of that criticism? Well, I think, um, you know, you know, more more broadly speaking, I think there was a lot of money in the ecosystem last year, whether it was from folks like Tiger or or SoftBank or others. Um, and what what they what they did was, you know, they played a very important role in financing these companies. Um, now, what remains to be seen is, you know, the role that they will that they will play and other growth equity players will play in terms of now getting these companies on a path towards profitability, on a path towards an IPO, maybe not. And maybe not in 2022, but in future years, um, and how they adjust their their mindset, how they adjust the the support that they're giving their portfolio companies. I think it's going to be very telling, actually, in the coming years. And so we look forward to working with them and, and other investors in in that realm to see, you know, how do you build long term sustainable businesses? That that's the main goal. Gary Tan, uh, formerly of Initialized, who's been a guest on this show many times, uh, is has been tapped to run Y Combinator, and you know, of course, there have been many Y Combinator startups born in a downturn, like Airbnb, like Stripe. What do you think the future is of a uh, accelerator like Y Combinator in a down market when there are other accelerators out there now, many other accelerators trying to do the same thing. It's, um, you know, the last two days have been the Y Combinator demo day. And so uh, we've been, you know, knee deep in looking at all the companies in there. Uh, you know, we've had a very strong relationship with Y Combinator before. We think it's one of the crown jewels of global innovation. Um, every, every six months, there's, you know, hundreds of companies that present and you you just have this feeling that there's within that, you know, within that realm, there's a couple of those that are going to be these enduring industry defining companies. 
Um, one of the things that we've noticed in this Y Combinator, um, you know, batch from from uh, from just the last couple of days, uh, you can notice cer certain macro trends, and I think this kind of this this gets to your question. One thing that we've gotten very excited about is the increased uh, use of artificial intelligence in companies that are that are in Y Combinator, and I think that's at one of the forefronts of trends in in the coming decade. And if you just we we ran the math um, earlier today about you know what percentage of companies are using artificial intelligence to build um, in this Y Combinator batch, and between AI and machine learning, it's almost a quarter of companies are doing this. And if you compare this to even two two batches or sorry two years ago, um, that's a three hundred percent growth of um, of companies doing that. And the only time we've seen that before is you know eight to ten years ago when you started seeing cloud companies and startups being built on the cloud. And you saw the growth of cloud computing, mm -hmm. AWS and, and, and Google and, and Microsoft. And so when, when you come to think about Y Combinator, uh, you start seeing these macro trends as well. And I think that's, uh, that, that's really what we're seeing there. All right, uh, interesting stuff. Amber Bhattacharya, Maverick Ventures, Managing Director. Uh, Amber, thank you for joining us. All right, coming up, an NBA champion churned tech investor. My conversation with San Francisco Warrior star Andre Iguodala is next. This is Bloomberg. As we're entering a potentially lengthy economic downturn, I caught up with NBA champion and Mastery Ventures general partner Andre Iguodala about where he's placing his bets and how the macro environment is impacting his strategy. Take a listen. For me personally, um, you know, earlier stage, which is where I'm investing, uh, you know, about 80 percent uh, of my time and resources, um, they haven't been affected as much. So if you look at, you know, pre-CC Series A, um, they haven't been affected as much, whereas the growth stage has been some uncertainty. Um, you've seen a lot of down rounds uh, coming out as of late, and I think those have been affected uh, more than any other sector. So for where I'm at, the deals are still pretty hot. Everyone's trying to get in, you know. Um, you're placing your bets earlier, there's bigger returns, but there's also uh, more risk. So for me, uh, still full throttle and, and still uh, chasing uh, the earlier deals. Now at Mastery, I know you say you want to ensure diversity when it comes to investing, to governance, to talent. What does that look like to you and how do you think you can personally influence it given your success as an athlete? I just think holding, you know, companies like the aggregators, um, you know, making sure that they're uh, doing their uh, duty into helping build the pipeline or, or just looking for the right talent. So what we've been able to do is identify uh, a black founded uh, talent search firm and using that firm to make sure that we're able to, you know, build the right pipelines uh, from, you know, HBCUs, um, higher education um, institutions um, with a, you know, with the talent and making sure that these companies are uh, building the right culture um, is, is one thing to, you know, hire minorities, but it's another thing to make sure those minorities 
are having success within that culture. So, you know, you got to build the right culture so they can have success once they work there. We found that that's been an issue as well. So um, holding these companies accountable is one thing and, you know, building out, um, you know, projections or building out, um, you know, pillars to make sure that, you know, this is what it should look like. You know, this is a percentage of uh, minorities that you should have within your companies uh, throughout building your companies as we're investing earlier and seeing them through and through. I recently spoke to Serena Williams about her foray into venture capital investing, and she she said that a lot of people look at her and think, you know, I'm just doing this as a hobby, but really it's a passion. And when it comes to, you know, what she can bring to the table from the court, she said, I like winning and I know how to win. What do you mm -hmm. think you bring from the court to investing that's unique, that traditional Silicon Valley venture capitalists don't have? Well, winning in, in there's similarities in terms of winning um, as uh, the percentage of uh, humans with within the sport or with this just in competing. And I think athletes and, and uh, venture capital investors, you know, this is it's really hard to win. And it's only a small percent that win at a high clip. And Serena fits right into that. I, I feel like uh, I've been fortunate enough to be around Steph Curry, so I fit into it as well. And for me, it's just <laughs> identifying, for me, it's identifying talent um, identifying how to make uh, best use of that talent. You know, I've been in situations where I've been, you know, the focal point of the organization. Uh, I've also been in a situation where I've been a six man and we've had success. And so understanding how the ego works, um, what I've learned throughout my journey in tech is, you know, the ego is big in tech is the same way it's big in sports. And, you know, you got some of the brightest um founders and you got some of the brightest uh, VCs and there's battles in, you know, stakeholders with, with the founders in terms of the direction of the company and just being able to make sure that, you know, all the egos are, you know, thrown out the window and we're all on the same page and how do we build a company efficiently, responsibly, um, you know, with the, with the consumer uh, in mind as well. You're also the co-host of a podcast called Point Forward, where you're interviewing top athletes, musicians, entrepreneurs. You've been making some waves. I believe Joe Lacob said, gotten a little trouble with something he said on your podcast. Um, I'm curious what trends you're seeing in the media landscape, given this new ability for people like yourself to just go straight to their audiences directly. Mm -hmm. Well, I think sports, as you can see with some of these, um, you know, some of the TV deals and uh, the, the rights um, to, you know, whether it's NFL, NBA, um, and then you just look at the deal that Big Ten did, uh, was astronomical, you know, a uh, great deal done by uh, Kevin Warner, Kevin Warren over at uh, who runs the Big Ten. Um, and you're starting to see in these sports has become actual media companies uh, with, you know, live sports being you, you can, you know, you can pretty much gauge what your viewership is going to be and how many eyeballs the advertisers can come across. And I feel like, um, athletes are starting to understand their influence and being able to leverage their brands as well. And, 
you know, understanding that there, there's not just the financial side, but also the branding side of you going straight to the consumer, which is what streaming is. And you've been able to talk to your fan base and um, whether it's you're trying to monetize it or just build that base of, of, of fans. And, you know, that's what we talk about with Web3. That's what we talk about with NFTs and, you know, the direct to consumer part of, of the business coming into media and sports as well. Are you bullish on NFTs in the future of sports? Uh, it's interesting. You know, I think um, we still have some work to do. I know security being a big a big part of that. You're seeing some of the cybersecurity um, investment uh, investing going way up. You're seeing a lot of people put money there. Uh, the you know the blockchain, Web three, NFTs. Uh, you you learn a lot when 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 your your account gets hacked. Um, but at the same time, um, you know everyone's saying it's similar to you know the the bubble, the dot com bubble around ninety nine, early two thousands, and you know how you were able to weave out you know some of the nonsense. And and hopefully we're at that stage right now. But um, in the grand scheme, and you look at the thesis of the blockchain and NFTs and how it should work, um, it definitely gives the athlete opportunity to go uh, directly to this fan base, being able to, you know, um, make it so it's very unique, it's differentiated, you know, it gives the fan, uh, you know, insights that's a lot different. And it's essentially cutting out the middleman. You can go straight to the fan base. And uh, we talk about, this a lot on point four podcast where we've had, you know, uh, owners of NBA teams, athletes. We had uh, Sam Bakeman Fried, who was a great conversation and a brilliant mind over at FTX. And um, I think that's what we're trying to do in a podcast. We're trying to bridge uh, sports uh, and business with culture right in the middle. Amazon's Prime Video will have exclusive streaming rights starting September 15th for Thursday Night Football, kicking off an 11-year, $13 billion deal that could forever alter the television landscape. This is the first time a streaming service has had exclusive rights to NFL games in the United States and a big challenge to major networks that have dominated sports for generations. Here to discuss is Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, who wrote about this for Bloomberg's big take. So Lucas, this is a huge deal. If you wanna watch Thursday Night Football, you're gonna to have to go on to Amazon Prime Video. How many viewers is this going to drive for Prime? And is the bet gonna be worth it? Well, Amazon is, is estimating that in the first year, it'll probably attract about 12 million viewers a week. That's below what the typical Thursday night broadcast has, has attracted, but much higher than I think the number of people using Amazon on your, on your average Thursday. I mean, the thing to remember for them is this is a very long-term bet. It's useful. It's, you know, they, they see football both as a, a benefit for their prime members. It's the big reason they're spending billions of dollars on entertainment. And it becomes very hard for us to see if that number really pencils out. But it also could provide a huge boost to their advertising business, which has been one of the fastest growing sectors of the company. And, you know, football is the hottest property on television. A $13 billion deal for 11 games a season. Is it is it worth it? 
Well, Amazon is paying less than other broadcasters pay for football. I mean, that's the thing to to remember here is that the price of sports rights has gotten absolutely ludicrous over the past several years. Uh, you know, it's I find it really hard to answer the is it worth it question with Amazon just because it feels like they're playing a different game than most of these other companies. You know, I think uh, when a, a CBS Paramount buys football rights, the, the bet is that their that show itself will probably lose money for them, but it brings so many people into CBS uh, that it it makes money for them overall. And without football, they would be far less valuable to the cable operators that need to carry the channel. It's not a perfect comparison, but it's a little bit similar to Amazon, where they're spending a lot of money to bring people into their ecosystem. The problem is that if you want to watch any of these games on a streaming platform, it is kind of confusing. For example, I like baseball. On Friday nights, I have to go to Apple, but only on Friday nights, not on any other night. How does that confusion smooth out over the longer term when you have all of these different networks and then all of these different streaming platforms getting just smaller pieces of a much larger pie? Well, first of all, I can't believe this is the first time I'm hearing that you're a baseball fan because I'm a huge <laughs> baseball fan, so this is just good information to have. But uh, baseball is a lot more complicated than the Please NFL. Please don't use I it think. against me. <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't, other than the fact that you're probably a Giants fan, and that is bad for me. But uh, I'm the... an A's fan, Lucas, an Oakland A's fan. I like okay. the Giants when the A's aren't playing them. Um, football is a little bit easier than baseball. Baseball is on regional sports networks. It's on a bunch of different networks. You know, Thursday night football is only going to be on Amazon. There's a little bit of, you know, confusion in that if you're in a bar, you'll be watching direct TV, but nobody's paying attention to how they're getting it. If you're in the market of the team playing, you may be able to watch it on local TV. But you're right that this requires a lot of marketing on Amazon's part. You know, they're not used to spending a ton of money to market their entertainment shows. They figure that people who are just sort of coming to Amazon anyways will watch the things that they have to offer. Because of how much money they've spent both on football and on their new Lord of the Rings show, they're starting to market uh, in a way that they really haven't before. And the, the nice thing about it is this will be one of the first times where we get weekly viewership numbers i think the first time actually where we get weekly viewership numbers from amazon so we'll be able to see real time each week how the viewership is and whether it's able to attract an audience that's comparable to tv and that's what the nfl is going to want to know right they're making a big bet here the nfl has only been available on linear networks for the most part uh for its history uh, and they've now given one of their flagship programs to a streaming service it's the first time they've done that. It's really the first time a major sports league in the U.S. has done it. Uh, and it is a, a big test of, sort of where we see the future of media going. All right, Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw. You can check out Lucas's big take in Bloomberg Business Week. Obviously, a lot of evolving and moving parts here. I do want to get to some breaking news that is crossing the terminal now. Advisors for Elon Musk have apparently written to Twitter about a separate basis to end that deal, that, of course, $44 billion buyout deal uh, that Musk is trying to walk away from. Uh, Musk saying, and his advisor saying, they became aware of facts that they believe serve as a basis for terminating that deal. This is coming in an amended 13D 
filing. We're going to continue to, to follow uh, these headlines. They're just crossing the terminal now. Uh, but either way, uh, an additional attempt for Elon Musk to get out of buying Twitter. Continuing our conversation on streaming now, I want to bring in George Pine, founder and CEO of Bruin Capital. Bruin has the rights to run NFL Game Pass worldwide for the league. So if you want to watch the Super Bowl in Hong Kong, London, or Brazil, it's through Game Pass. So George, I know you were listening to our conversation with Lucas earlier. Some people are calling this, uh, you know, move towards more streaming platforms, having more uh, sports rights, an inflection point, like an inflection point in broadcast history. Do you think it's fair to say that at this point or too soon? Emily, thanks for having me. I think it's a little too soon to say that. I'd say they're around the hoop per se, but I don't think it's an inflection point. I think you're seeing more activity. I mean, Apple with NFL Plus, Amazon with the Thursday Night Football, Apple with Major League Soccer. But still, they're, they're kind of not the major moves. No one's unseated, unseating Fox or CBS or the NBA or the NFL. So I, I, they're around the hoop in a way they haven't been before. But I wouldn't quite say it's an inflection point. Okay. So how long do you think then that this land grab is going to take to play out? And what does it look like? on the other side. Do streaming platforms have more power, have uh, more power over the sports that, you know, so many millions of people want to watch? Or do the traditional networks hold on to a lot of that power? Well, I think it's twofold. One, the money's in the old media, right? It's the most, sports are the most valuable thing for old media. I mean, like 95%, 95 of the top 100 shows on television are sports, enormously valuable content. And I break the streamers into two groups. I mean, Paramount Plus, Peacock, and ESPN Plus, those are tied to linear television. And so that's a, uh, an attempt where you're able to use both streaming and linear in a package. And it's quite different than Amazon and Apple, who are really using it, as Lucas said, almost as a sponsorship, a way to augment their other business. And so Amazon and Apple are quite different than Paramount Plus, ESPN Plus, and others like in Peacock. So there are two strategies. And, um, you know, it's more seamless on the media side because that content's so valuable. And then on the what I call the retail product side, it's still valuable, but it's valuable because it's really driving awareness to another core product. And, and you could choose Thursday Night Football or another form of entertainment. But if you're a media company, sports is, is irreplaceable and invaluable. And, and the value proposition to a media company is far greater than it would be to a retail product. Now, Bruin has the rights to NFL Game Pass. The league is also pursuing NFL Plus. What's your take on the league pursuing its own streaming platform? I think it's quite bright, you know, because they're trying to reach this. The youth, they're also you have in the mix here, the young consumers are where the streamers are. So if I'm the NFL, I'm trying to reach that audience, whether it's through NFL Plus, will be someday the Sunday ticket package, Amazon. Those are critical consumers to grow the game. So I think it's smart to try and have as many touch points with the consumer, particularly the young consumer. It's, it's really good. And then internationally, 
it's tough to watch NFL all around the world. And so, of course, NFL Game Pass really serves that purpose to feed people NFL content, you know, for us, in our case, in 181 countries. So what does the league making these changes, working towards this evolution, what does that mean for Game Pass and for your business? Well, for us, we're outside the U.S., so I think this is a di it's a different approach. Game Pass International is really a growth engine for, for international. It's a, you're marketing to consumers one person at a time. So I think international and domestic are quite, are, are quite different, uh, and different strategies, different All objectives. Right. Uh, Game Pass International is a very important part of the marketing outside the United States for the NFL, as is uh, NFL Plus in the U.S., but it's, you have more, more resources inside the U.S. and less outside the U.S. All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us ahead of a big football weekend here in the United States. Brewing Capital founder and CEO George Pine, appreciate you stopping by. We're going to continue our coverage of sports streaming Monday. Marie Donahue, Amazon Vice President of Global Sports Video, just four days out from Thursday Night Football, taking center shade. She's going to join us to talk about Prime Video and this big bet that Amazon is making. Plus, tonight, Bloomberg premiering Bloomberg's The Lineup. Kaylee Lines and Damian Sassauer are going to give you the latest on betting trends and talk about the biggest players across the industry, 7 p.m. Eastern, Fridays. Coming up, all things NFTs and tech with Proof Collective co-founder and serial tech entrepreneur, Kevin Rose. That is next. This is Bloomberg. crypto report and I want to take a look now at NFTs with Proof Collective which recently announced a big raise 50 million dollars led by Andreessen Horowitz participation also from 776 that's Alexis Ohanian's venture capital firm I want to talk about what it all means for Collective's expansion plans with its co-founder and CEO Kevin Rose who of course also founded the social news site Dig back in the day he was a general partner at Google Ventures a longtime angel investor he backed Twitter, Facebook, Square, and is the host of the Proof and Modern Finance podcasts. He joins us now along with our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik in New York. Kevin, welcome. Shanali, take it away. Kevin, I'm really Thanks curious. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're really curious here because obviously there has been this crypto winter, yet you were able to raise a Series A here in a world where NFT collections at large have been very volatile this year. What yeah. is it that makes an NFT collection valuable and how much of it has to do with the community rather than the assets themselves? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is certainly the community and the strength of that community and, you know, how active and engaged they are in what you're building. Because, you know, as a company, we're just a handful of people. And, and really, it's how we deputize our community to go out and build on our behalf that makes us so powerful. So I think what you're seeing with what we're doing at Proof with Moonbirds 
is really the birth of kind of a decentralized brand in which the community has the keys to the castle. They get to be the ones to go out and decide how to use the IP and how to monetize it. It's a complete flip of, say, something like a Disney, where they're the ones that hold the IP close to the their own. Um, they hold it internally, and they never really release it. So they are the ones that get to monetize the entire thing. And this is a chance to completely flip that model. Flipping the model, but what about what it means relative to other NFT collections? What sets apart Moonbirds, for example, from the Bored Apes? Yeah, I mean... I think you really have to find your community, like every community inside of the world of PFPs, these profile photo pictures, um, they have different vibes and different uh, kind of core tenets of who, what they stand for. We are always this idea of this love of an appreciation of art, this curation with a point of view. That's kind of what we've always uh, done at Proof. We're not about getting into this crazy um, market of, of muddy waters of flipping NFTs or how to quick, make a quick 5X. And we're long-term builders. I mean, we've been doing this for 20 plus years in terms of who we are as entrepreneurs, having built many businesses over that a period of time. And, you know, many of the uh, members on our team are ex-Google. And so it's really a, a level of maturity that's coming to the table here to build this business. And I think people have a lot of confidence in, in who we are um, as that team, you know, the, this is largely an anonymous space where there's a lot of products and some great projects actually that launch with anonymous founders. But in a world where there's this uncertainty and there can certainly be sometimes what they call rug pulls where you never know if a project just disappears, uh, you know, six months later, uh, we've kind of put everything out there and said, we're serious about this. We're going to go raise venture capital and we're going to be a team that's going to st stick around for many years to come. You know, critics also say here that if you look at what NFTs are, to what extent is there utility behind them? How do they go beyond just being digital art and into something that has a broader purpose? What do you say to critics like that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a new, very new idea and concept for people to wrap their head around where for the very first time, it, it, you actually have and collect something that is uh, a, co a core piece of ownership of a project. So oftentimes, as these projects become more and more popular, value accrues back to these NFTs as uh, collectible pieces of art. And that is different in that if you're dealing with a traditional media company, you're just a consumer. Like if you go out and you watch a Star Wars movie or you go and, and you somehow um, – uh, participate in that experience. Yes, they're great media experiences, but there's nothing really to walk away with there that is a part of that project. And here you have these different members of the community coming together and taking this artwork that they actually own and going off and doing very creative things with it. So they can they can figure out when and how they want to monetize it. They can remix it. And you're deputizing a community of brand builders to go out there and blow this up and get it more and more exposure in new and creative ways that you never thought possible as a centralized organization. So the bet here really is to say, we think there's a different way to build a media business here. And it's not one where it's a handful of people in a boardroom that get to make the decisions, but it's really empowering the community to go out and do big and bold things on our behalf. And we're just kind of the ones that are making sure that 
the, the business is running and that we have are delivering solid products in, in conjunction with our community members. Kevin, given you're so steeped in the earlier social iterations of the internet, for our viewers who are less crypto native, can you explain why you think blockchain technology and Web3 really is the future and what happens to these social platforms like Facebook and Twitter uh, that we all know now in this future? Do they continue to exist? Yeah, it's, it's a good question because there is a lot of um, certainly the Web3 environment and, and community behind it are a lot more um, privacy focused. And there is is certainly this idea that we can come in and reinvent a lot of the te technology that's underpinning a lot of these businesses in a way that doesn't put the consumer as the product, that doesn't sell their eyeballs, that doesn't sell their personal information. So that's a really exciting new direction to move the web. And it's early days. So what we're building here is kind of the infrastructure and underpinnings of all of that. And you'll see that be spread across a whole series of different categories. So our art and digital collectibles being the obvious one here with NFTs and, and rewriting the way that artists get paid with royalties enforceable by the blockchain and just a lot of really exciting things that are happening there, which I certainly believe that it's pretty clear now that the future of a lot of art is going to go in the form of NFTs, but certainly there's going to be the same reimagination and reinvention of classic Web2 properties in a way that puts the consumer in more control and gives them a piece of that upside so they're not just a product of a big uh, or a massive like Fortune 500 company, but really they are actually part of that ownership via tokens or, or or via NFTs. So it's a pretty exciting new new change. You know, there's a lot about to happen in the next couple of weeks with the Ethereum merge. I guess my question is, do you think the gatekeepers of the internet today, Meta, Twitter, Google, do they survive in this new world? Or is all of this new technology a, a major threat to them? Certainly, there are going to be companies like any major shift, like we saw with Web 1.0 going to Web 2.0 or whatever it may be. There are companies that that get it, that understand it at a core level. I would put, um, you know, Jack Dorsey in that camp, right? Because all the things that they've done at Square uh, and everything they're building at Block, I think that's they're, they're an amazing group of innovators. They understand blockchain technology at a very, very core level. Um, there are others that are playing in this realm, meaning that if you take a look at Instagram, how they embraced and enabled NFTs now to be displayed, but it's, it's more like a bolt-on and not really a retooling and rethinking of the product at its core. I don't think long-term the kind of bolt-on, we're just going to do this because it's the hot thing of the week. I don't think that's going to play well, and it's really not the, the dramatic change that consumers, at least in the Web3 space, are looking for. And so um, for me, it's going to be a lot of new native companies built from the ground up that tackle these problems. So it's going to be brand new businesses that are being built right now that will probably in the next two to three years really emerge as some of the early winners. And so, you know, I would say the reason we went out and raised this round of financing um, with Andreessen is that we believe there's a better way to do a media business and, and that really puts the consumers in control 
of of this um, of these assets and really gives them a way to experience and, and collect digital collectibles that have never been done before. So that's what's exciting for us. But that's just one vertical of probably 15 that the blockchain is going to address and reimagine over the next few years. Fascinating. Well, it's great to hear about what you're doing now. Kevin Rose, CEO and co-founder of Proof Collective, along with our very own Shanali Basik. Thank you for stopping by. We're going to be right back. This is Bloomberg. other stories we are watching. Tesla is considering building a battery-grade lithium refinery on the Gulf Coast of Texas. The company has filed a newly public application for tax breaks with the Texas Comptroller's Office, calling the proposed facility the first of its kind in North America. The electric car maker is also evaluating a site in Louisiana. And Amazon sellers are bracing for a bleak holiday shopping season. This has Inflation-bitten consumers are curbing their spending. Many merchants who sell more than half of the goods on the Amazon website are concerned they're going to be forced to cut prices to move a mountain of unsold inventory. This is an abrupt change from the previous two years when sellers were scrambling to get enough products into Amazon warehouses to meet all of that pandemic-fueled demand, despite chronic shortages that let them jack up. Prices. That's a trend we're going to continue to follow. And that does it for this Friday edition of Bloomberg Technology Monday. Really excited to have Marie Donahue, Amazon's Vice President of Global Sports Video, to talk about their $13 billion foray into the NFL. And tonight, Bloomberg premiering the lineup. Kaylee Lines and Damian Sassauer. We're going to give you the latest data on betting trends and talk to the biggest players in the industry. 7 p.m. Eastern. This is Bloomberg. Have a wonderful weekend. Audio Jungle. Right here in Georgia, Brian Kemp prides himself on signing one of the toughest abortion laws in the country, a six-week ban he pushed through in 2019. Now, with Brian Kemp as our governor, Georgia is the number one state for maternal death in America, especially for black women. Brian Kemp wants to force us to give birth despite destroying the formula needed to keep our babies healthy. Stacey Abrams is ready to fight back, and she's never backed down from a fight. That's why I'm voting early in October for Stacey Abrams. She'll be the governor who fights for us all. Paid for by Abrams for Governor. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Mike. It's Michelle and Eric calling from beautiful Greenville, South Carolina, where the leaves are turning colors and the temperature is perfect. We were hoping you guys could join us. It's really an easy drive and they have everything here. Restaurants like crazy. The biking and the hiking are incredible. Well, that's what we've been doing when we're not stuffing our faces. The people are so nice here. Everything is so nice here. Okay, call us back and tell us you're coming. Plan your trip at visitgreenvillesc.com.
welcome back to the Thinking Crypto Podcast, your home for cryptocurrency news and interviews. If you are new here, please hit that subscribe button as well as the thumbs up button and leave a comment below. If you're listening on a podcast platform such as Apple or Spotify, please give me a five-star rating. It helps support the channel and it doesn't cost you anything. This content is brought to you by Uphold, which is a great platform that makes it easy to buy, sell, trade, and earn cryptocurrencies. Uphold has been around for a long time. They have 10 plus million users, 200 plus cryptocurrencies, and they're available in 150 countries. I've been a user for years. I've interviewed the CEO, the founders, and many representatives. Uh, so I can vouch for this platform. It, it is great. It's easy to use. If you'd like to learn more, visit the link in the description. All right, let's look at the crypto market cap here because Bitcoin saw a bounce. Right now, we are sitting at $21,288, up 10% uh, from a 24-hour perspective, up near 7%. From a seven-day perspective, Ethereum currently sitting at over $1,700. So seeing some green, but of course, we're still in a bear market. We're still in that max pain zone. So if we look at the Bitcoin weekly chart here, you know there is a green candle, but very small. And it's nothing to write home or call home about because we have to let this thing play out. We are still in a very tough macroeconomic situation with the Fed, recession, interest rates, and you guys know what's been going on, right? Inflation and all that jazz. So we have to be careful here. But, you know, if you are swing trading and, you know, you bought the dip when Bitcoin dropped to below 18,000 uh, just, you know, a few days ago, uh, you could, you know, certainly sell for some profits here. And that's the great thing. You can use the volatility to your advantage and swing trade. Now, I do some swing trading. I did not swing trade this. I've been buying the dips and I'm waiting to see if Bitcoin's going to do a retracement, maybe to 40K, where I'll take some profits. You know, Ethereum, hope maybe it gets back to 3,000. I'll take some profits. And we know the market's kind of been rallying behind the narrative of, of the Ethereum merge. So uh, we'll see what happens. And there are some big things lined up this month because. You have the Ethereum merge, Cardano, Vassal, Hard Fork. You have the Flare uh, network distribution, token distribution, possibly, uh, that hasn't been confirmed. And could we potentially see an SEC Ripple lawsuit resolution? Maybe, right? And once again, I said maybe. So th these are probabilities. These are not certainties. But as an investor, you want to look at what uh, is happening and make a, a, some sort of guesstimation, form a thesis, right? And you got to be prepared for all scenarios. So just heads up on what we're seeing in the market. And look, I, I want the green to continue. I want the prices to continue going up, but we have to be realistic as well. Now, speaking of uh, prices and Bitcoin here, MicroStrategy's SEC filings reveal the company is considering selling $500 million in stock to purchase more Bitcoin. <laughs> Michael Saylor is at it again. Now, I, you know, I don't know what's going on with Saylor. He's got, you know, tax evasion uh, uh, accusations following him by, you know, the, the, the government, the uh, different folks in D.C. saying he him and MicroStrategy uh, did some tax evasion. So we'll see what the outcome is around that. I don't know if that's true, but look, it's a big case when you have the government coming after you. 
and we know that uh he's been stepped he stepped back as the or stepped down as the ceo so it looks like they're still continuing their bitcoin strategy and hopefully it works out for them I, you know i don't want anything bad to happen to people but uh certainly it is a risky time right with the prices being down with the macroeconomic factors as well now guys empower oversight which has uh well i should let you guys know what it is first many of you may not know it is a whistleblower organization and they do a lot of investigations FOIA requests to make sure the government is doing the right thing right and they're, they're abiding by the laws as they try to make us abide by the laws and and they are abiding by the rules that they try to make us abide by and the constitution as well and we know they've been they've been investigating the SEC and potential conflicts of interest around the ethereum situation the whole ripple lawsuit and so forth so they gave an update today they said the SEC lifts unspecified redactions on nearly 1,500 pages of crypto conflict documents. They tweeted, Empower Oversight filed a motion in its lawsuit against the SEC seeking time to conduct a detailed review of about 1,500 pages of documents the SEC dropped just one day before filing for summary judgment in FOIA litigation over cryptocurrency conflicts of interest at the agency according to the sec the documents consist of new versions of all the previously produced documents but with some redactions lifted to publicly reveal new information however the sec failed to indicate where exactly it had lifted the uh the redactions uh it continues here saying when Empower Oversight sought clarification about how and whether the SEC had marked the newly revealed information. The agency advised that the Empower Oversight would have to conduct a page-by-page -page comparison to the original document productions to hunt for new information. Here, uh, Jason Foster, who's the president, the founder and president of Empower Oversight, here's a quote from him. He said, this is another example of the SEC playing silly games with serious litigations. Uh, Americans deserve better treatment than this. And these tactics are further evidence of bad faith and lack of professionalism. Absolutely. Well said, Jason Foster. And this is the nonsense that we continue to see from the SEC. And this is why Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, if you guys recall earlier this year, had to tweet out the SEC is acting shady. How can a government agency behave like this? And this is why Tom Emmer and many others are going to be going after Gary Gensler and the SEC. Tom Emmer called it the Wild West for regulators, not just crypto, but for regulators. Gary Gensler is acting out of pocket. Uh, trying to flex his muscles and power that he actually doesn't have. He doesn't make the law. He has to abide by the laws Congress puts together. So we are in such a, a, a weird situation here, but we know what the root of Gary Gensler's motives are, and that is to protect the incumbents, right? They're doing all this nonsense while their mission is to protect investors. We know it's heavily geared and influenced by incumbents, the big banks, the financial institutions, 
who want to slow crypto down so they can catch up. And this is where what we're dealing with. This is why we have to fight. I've told you guys many times on many occasions, make videos, write articles, contact your representatives, tweet. Our voices are being heard because the uh, members of Congress, our representatives are on Twitter and they're seeing they're seeing the comments. Now, we don't want to cross any lines. We don't want to make you know threats or anything like that. But we need to voice our disapproval, voice our unhappiness with this nonsense, and let the, our voices be heard. And we saw the movements that this is creating. People in D.C. are aware of uh, you know the unhappiness with the SEC, and and overall, you know that they know crypto and crypto users are here to stay, and they have power. And it, it was an example of that is, of course, what happened with the infrastructure bill, right? And and the crypto community being a big part of holding that bill up, uh, working along with the industry. So the SEC continues their nonsense under Gary Genser. Now, obviously, you have folks at the SEC who do not agree with Gary Genser and what he's doing. And we know Hester Peirce is one of them, and I've interviewed her on many occasions. Well, we have another commissioner coming out, and there's an article that he uh, published today or was interviewed uh, in Barron's. Guys, look at this. The headline is, Regulation by Enforcement Won't Work for Crypto, argues SEC Commissioner. So we have another person at the SEC, not in line with Gary Genser and the nonsense he's doing, and calling out the SEC's uh, really lack of clear guidelines and taking the wrong approach. So I'm going to read parts of it so you know who it is. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire article. So as the head of securities uh, and exchange Con commission continues to insist that crypto tokens should largely be regulated as securities under established commission rules, other leaders of the agencies are taking issue with that approach arguing instead of a formal rulemaking process to tailor new regulations for digital assets. In remarks, um, here it says, Friday at the annual SEC Speak Conference, Commissioner Mark Yeda, if I'm saying that right, called crypto regulation a big, difficult, and complex issue that is conspicuous, uh, excuse me, conspicuously absent from the Commission's published regulatory agenda. Wow, right? Calling it out. And who who leads the ship here? Goldman Gary Genser. So uh, clearly a shot at him. So Yeda, a veteran SEC staffer who was sworn in as commissioner in June, echoed the calls from Coinbase and other industry players for clearer rules of the road for a sector, a crypto sector they argue is fundamentally different from conventional securities. Absolutely. Thank you, Commissioner Yeda. You and I've been talking about it nonstop, right? I've been tweeting about it. You cannot compare oranges being sold as securities in the 1930s in Florida to coins that exist on globally distributed blockchain networks, on decentralized networks, right? And when other countries are viewing those same tokens, that the SEC is trying to police or call as securities as virtual currencies. Big problem, 
big inconsistency there, right? When we think about what this uh, asset class is, what is technology is. So Gary Ganser is playing, uh, trying to play police as though he controls the world when he doesn't. And other major countries and superpower countries, uh, large ones, don't view these tokens as securities. Now, are there scams in the crypto industry? Of course, just like there they have been in every other industry that uh, where there's new technology, where nefarious actors try to use the technology uh, to do bad things. Are there legit securities, like actual securities, you know, certain tokens offered up in a certain way, uh, where to be a Ponzi or securities? Yes. But what Genser won't do is say which is which. He won't say, hey, these are okay. These are actually companies building, and they're not trying to do anything. They're actually trying to, you know, make sure that they're in line. But there are bad actors who are in the shadows, right, who are doing things. But Gensler's not going after the bad actors. He's going after the big companies, right? He's going after the ripples and and any anybody that he can clearly see what they're doing and so forth, regardless if they're doing bad or good, he's just going to go after them. And that's the problem. That is that is so silly, right? Common sense will tell you that. So this is the situation we face. But guys, great to see even new commissioners coming in saying, hey, this is nonsense. What are we doing? What, where's the rules? You know, we, we got to be clearer here. So great to see this. And once again, this was published uh, on Barron's Today. Now, let's move ahead. Uh, more SEC news. The SEC enforcement chief, Gerber Grewal, if I'm saying that right, warned the crypto industry that his division can't ignore legal violations. Oh, yeah? Well, how about you guys clean house with all the conflicts of interest before you try to go tell other co- industries and companies what to do? We understand the SEC is supposed to protect retail investors and go after scams, but they're going after legit companies, and they haven't provided the clear guidelines. They haven't provided an updated Howey test. So this is all, uh, you know, BS in my opinion. Uh, he's kind of become uh, Gary Genser's lapdog here, and, and Gary Genser's got him going around saying things. And remember, he got grilled by the members of Congress, Tom Emmer, Warren Davidson, and so forth. And he chickened out when he couldn't answer anything about Ethereum, saying, oh, there's the, the Ripple lawsuit and and so forth. But in, in a way, he indirectly um, conf- confirmed that there is a legit situation or conflict here with the uh, 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 Bill Hinman speech and Ethereum by not addressing it, right? He's like, oh, you know, that, that scenario, scenario you brought up, hypothetical uh that is being discussed and placed in the sec ripple lawsuit and so forth so i can't speak to it oh but i thought it was bs i i thought it's nonsense i thought it's conspiracy theory there's nothing there there is something there and and they know it but they you know they're gonna put up this face and say all these things but they're not cleaning house right there's conflicts. There's well, who knows what else. What other corruption is is going on at the SEC? Um, so let's move ahead here. We got some big news. So Anthony Scaramucci, who I've interviewed multiple times on the channel, uh, his fund Skybridge Capital is of course heavily invested in Bitcoin. 
and also Algorand, which is which I'm a big fan of. Well, some big news between him and Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, who's the CEO of FTX. He said FTX Ventures and Sam Bankman-Fried are acquiring a stake in Skybridge. Sam and I have gotten to know each other for the last two years and have partnered together on a few things, including Salt Conference and Crypto Bahamas. We couldn't be more excited about this partnership. So this is pretty big. And, and here are the here's the quick rundown on this partnership. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and, and, and FTX uh, bought 30% stake of uh, Skybridge Capital. FTX is paying $40 million for a 30% stake. Scaramucci is not selling any of his stock. Skybridge manages $2.7 billion of client assets under management, valuing the enterprise at approximately 4.9% of the um, assets under management. Bankman Freed used the word excited 10 to 15 times. <laughs> so a uh, big partnership here. And once again, this is what I want to see as an investor because you, you just capital coming in in different ways, mergers, acquisitions, expansions globally, right? It shows these people are bullish on the market. They're making the investments and they're doing in the in the bear market, getting ready for the next bull market. They know there's money to be made and we haven't hit full mass adoption. I've talked about it on the, on the channel here that, it, you know, in the 2027, excuse me, 2024 bull run, uh, we could see that 100% mainstream adoption, right? Because you have some big players here, BlackRock, Fidelity, and so forth. Or we get close to it, maybe 70, 80% uh, mass adoption. But then, you know, in future bull markets, that's when we hit the 100%. So I'm thinking of it, you know, from how many billions of people are we reaching? How many people are participating in the asset class? How the technology is being implemented real world and so forth. And uh, look, these guys who are billionaires, right? Millionaires, big players. A lot of them were doing investments in the traditional financial world are now here and they're betting on crypto. So I hope you see what is happening here. And it's not what they do. Excuse me, not what they say, it's what they do, right? Look at the actions. Forget about what they say. They're making investments, mergers, acquisitions, expansions. They're making the investments, my friends. And uh, here, speaking of investments, the investment arm of one of Singapore's largest family offices will begin pouring $100 million into Web3 startups by next quarter. Wow. So it's happening globally. And if you total up all the millions of dollars that have already entered the market, some some billions, we're probably, you know, maybe definitely over 50 billion, I would say. Um, and that number is going to continue to grow. Uh, absolutely will continue to grow. So um, and my number might be conservative there because there's there's probably a lot we don't know yet, but uh, you know as the news is coming out, we're hearing about it, right? Uh, you go back to Paul Tudor Jones and then Ray Dalio and uh, A16Z and all these folks. And by the way, I'm in contact with a fund that raised a billion dollars to invest in crypto. I will be interviewing one of the founders of those of that fund. I won't say the name yet because I don't want to root for you guys. Um, but I, you know, I'm in contact and I'll try to get that interview later this month. 
And you're going to hear directly from the horse's mouth. They're going to be buying the coins and investing in the companies. And by the way, that fund actually hired Jake Clayton. Well, let me not give you guys, let me not uh, give the big reveal. I'll tell you guys later on as we get closer. Um, and uh, yeah, so guys, Wampoa to wield $100 million for Web3. This is the investment arm of the Singapore family office and everybody all these, all these big funds, family offices, VCs, hedge funds are looking to put money in crypto. We also got news here. Blockchain.com to open Dubai office after securing preliminary regulatory approval. Once again, expansion. These exchanges, these platforms are going global because we have not hit full adoption yet. They know what's on the horizon. There's actually a news item I forgot to pull up here, but I want to share with you guys. It has to do with JP Morgan and Microsoft, and that'll be the last news item here. Let me get it for you guys. So here we go. JP Morgan hires former Microsoft executive to its digital assets-related payments group, Microsoft's former corporate treasurer and chief investment officer, Tahreem Campton, joined JP Morgan's payments, uh, which focuses on digital payments and blockchain technology. So uh, big things happening, my friends, hiring, and once again, expansions, investments, mergers, acquisitions. That's what I want to see as an investor. I know the price. Everybody wants the price they go up. I want to be rich. I want to make a lot of money. But there's a path to that. And there's market cycles. You have to exercise patience and you have to do research. This is why I created this channel. I'm sharing the facts with you. I'm not making anything up here. It's not my own dreams and wishes and feelings and emotions. It's, hey guys, look at the, this company investing this hundreds of million dollars of dollars into the crypto market. Look at, uh, you know, Skybridge and FTX. Look at this merger, right? And, and all these different things. So that is what we're we're doing here on this podcast. And uh, you, as an investor, you want to be well-researched and not just, you know, floating like a ship without a sail in the water, moving with the price like, oh, no, the price is down today. Oh, no, the price is up today. No, no. Take a position when the prices are low, of course. Sit back and watch what chess pieces are being moved. Watch the puzzle pieces come together. Yes, you you want to take profits as the price goes up, of course. But you want to look at the macro because that will give you a, a time horizon um, as to when you may make a certain level of return, right? Because there's still future bull markets to go. So something to keep in mind, uh, if you're looking to day trade or and trade and make some quick bucks, maybe this is not for you, you know, as far as this channel, if you're looking for investing and to build wealth and build life-changing money, this is what, you know, the goal of this channel, because I personally done it for myself, being uh, here in 2016. And even though we're in a bear market where the valuations are down, my portfolio is still looking uh, decent because I'm up compared to what I bought in 2018, the bear market lows, right? So, and I had to wait years for, for that to go, but my patience paid off. And that is what I keep trying to share with you guys because I'm trying to wake people up as to the opportunity that's here 
There's never been anything in the history of the world like this where you and I retail can front run a lot of the institutions, guys, where this thing is built as, uh, you know, a true Metcalf's law network adoption where you get equity. You, you're, it's an equitable uh, uh, setup, right? Economy, because you can hold the tokens and benefit from the network growing. Uh, I've often talked about, you know, you're on Facebook, you're on YouTube, you're on Twitter and whatever you put, you put your activity on there, but you don't benefit. You don't get any of the uh, revenue from Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or so forth. Right. But they use your activity. Now you, you know, if you're on a network, let's say the, the Ethereum network or the XRP ledger or whatever, right. You're holding the tokens and you participate in that network. You're benefiting from it. Right. So, uh, it's just if when when it clicks for you when you understand what's happening here, uh, then it's clear. You know, as far as your investments, yes, you have to be wise. Yes, you have to be smart. Buy the lows, sell the highs. Be patient. Anyway, guys, that's the news. Let me know what you think. Leave your thoughts and comments below. Hit the thumbs up button. Share this video, and I'll talk to you all later. Moving day means that you and the things that matter to you are in for a big transition. There's a lot to figure out. New closets, different counter space, change of floor plan. No worries. CubeSmart is here, so you have a place for everything. It's our job to make self-storage as easy as possible. Online or in person, this is a self-storage experience that puts the focus on you because you matter to us. With self-storage that fits seamlessly into your life, you'll have plenty of peace of mind to unpack along the way. Visit CubeSmart.com today. For over a decade, the Merrill Moab has been the best-selling choice of hikers, made famous for its out-of-the-box comfort, durability, and all-purpose versatility. We love to be outside with our friends, rain or shine. Moab is a mindset, so let's keep going and step further. It's time to Moab on. Make good mornings great with a Bowl of Brooks collection featuring cereal-inspired shoes, available in multiple styles. The collection delivers spoonfuls of nostalgia that will add flavor to your morning running routine. Start your day the Brooks way at Academy Sports and Outdoors. You are listening to I Am Refocused Radio with your host, Shamaya Reed. This show is designed to inspire you to live your purpose and regain your focus. And now, here's your host, Shamaya Reed. Hey, welcome to I Am Refocus Radio. Man, we are here once again. And today, we have another awesome guest for the show. Today, we're going to talk to Casey Meyer. She's not just an amazing business owner. She is also a Army Operation Iraqi Freedom War veteran. She has been doing great things with her own community of helping other veterans who might have PTSD, but she also studied psychology to do that. And man, it's an honor, true honor to have you on the show today. I want to say, first of all, thank you for your service and how you doing. I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for having me. 
Man, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Today, we're just going to talk about just you being an entrepreneur, you you being a business owner, but also you having platforms to, to help other veterans, and you're also a coach of many things. So before we dive into all that, man, tell us a little bit about yourself. So like you said, I am an Army veteran. Um, I have uh, been out the army since 2004. So about 18 years. Um, I did about three and a half years. I originally signed up for a six year term, but, um, was, uh, discharged on a medical discharge after I had problems with my knee, um, following me volunteering to go to Iraq. Um, I have been a life coach, probably really honestly, all of my life. Um, but I started pursuing Speaking Freedom as a business in 2010 after I had my daughter. Um, so I've been doing this like full time. I wrote my first book in 2006 and I've just spent a lot of my time just trying to be uh, an active voice in the community, not just for veterans, but making sure that I include veterans. And your website, uh, speakingfreedom.org. You can see everything that you do and it looks like you just, you're just busy. You, you don't just focus on one thing, you focus on many things. And you also, you, you just, I see you're just active <laughs> to say the least. Uh, when you are helping people, uh, what's some of the common patterns of, of difficulty that they, or facing when, when they're coming to you for searching for help and just for that coaching part to get them to the next level that they're trying to go to? A lot of times the deepest thing to try to help people get away from is living in a sense of denial that often comes with um, being uh, deeply in religion and holding on to old behavior patterns. A lot of people don't realize um, sometimes that they can put themselves in a fault by not really saying, okay, this is who I am. This is where I am in my life. And these are the things that got me here. So a lot of people are, um, a lot of people in general use religion as a means to act like everything is okay. So if you're acting like everything is okay, then you don't have um, the accountability needed to really address the things that you're facing. Um, so a lot of times people come with, it's all type of dilemmas. Um, a lot of people come with relationship problems. There are people that, have just social anxieties um, common with myself. Uh, and it is a lot of just trying to break down the barriers of what started uh, their current state of being and how to help them identify with the core issues and gain the self-acceptance needed so that they can be at peace with themselves and then further their existence in the world. Yeah, I like uh, how you had in your bio this uh, piece of it that I thought it stuck out. And it's basically 
Your goal is to shift the world one person at a time, uniting in love, light, and wisdom. And is that like your core of of just not just who you are, but also what you try to apply with your businesses and service? Well, I built my business around who I am as a person. And I am generally um, a very loving individual. I see the best in everybody. Um, Even when people do me wrong, I can still see um, the things that could have gone right. So I've built my business on me being a mom um, because that is very time consuming, but also um, love. It started out as like the love movement. So I learned that the things that are wrong with me, quote unquote, aren't necessarily wrong with me. It's just things that people have told me that I should be different in areas that this is just who I am. And then understanding myself, um, understanding why I became the person that you see. Um, there was a time that I was a little bit more ang- angry and mean a little bit, but a lot of that was just built up tension from um, trying to be accepted, feeling rejected. So once I began to really look at myself and examine myself and love myself more, I realized that self-love helps you love other people better because now you're not looking at them like, oh, they did me wrong. Now you're looking at them like, oh, something is already going on with them and they're just projecting um, whatever those feelings are. They are probably triggered by something that happened that made them respond in a certain type of way. So when you start looking at things like that, then you begin to move in a different type of love. Because if you loving yourself, then it's easier to love others because you become more understanding. You become more compassionate. You become more of, okay, if I was in their shoes, how would I respond? If I lived the life that they lived, how would I be? And then that makes you love yourself more, but love others from a place of understanding. And if every person begins to love themselves in such a way that they don't look for flaw in people, but they look at people with understanding, then eventually the goal is to um, be so loving with ourselves that we love each other and then people won't be as judgmental as they are today as condemning as just you know it's a lot of people that are stuck on pointing the finger and placing blame and not a lot of accountability and understanding people for where they are and who they are based on their circumstances a lot of us as individuals don't realize that we are all different. We all come from different environments. We are raised by our parents differently. Some people didn't have parents. Some people had overprotective parents. Some people had parents that, you know, influenced them to do bad things. And when you realize that everybody is raised different, everybody's environments are different, everybody's beliefs are different, 
then that helps you kind of take a step back and um, not be so hard pressed about your views on life. Yeah, I like those points. And with that said, when people are, are learning, right? Because this is part of it too, right? It's, it's not just, I know it all, so therefore I'm right and you're wrong. It's also, hey, I'm learning to do this. Touch on that for all it's because it's also learning from others, learning for everybody versus what you think you know. As a life coach and an avid reader, I've read about 150 or so books um, in the last four years. I listen to audio books. I'm not sitting down reading books because I don't have time for that. But as you begin to learn, you realize that there is a lot of things that you don't know. I've learned a whole lot and it's still so much in the world that I can't even fathom what I haven't learned yet. Um, when it comes to history, when it comes to um, possibilities, there is always the ability to learn from somebody else's experience from what somebody else um, knows, what they've learned. There are a lot of things that we don't have to bump our heads learning or learn the hard way because somebody else could talk to us about certain stuff. And it's kind of crazy because a lot of people think, well, if somebody is divorced and I'm married, I can't listen to that divorced person because what they're going to tell me, their marriage didn't work. But that's kind of not true. You can't listen to any bitter person. A person can be married and seemingly happy, but be bitter and tell you all the negative things about being married. While a person that got divorced because of knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and needing to pursue purpose could give you all the wisdom in the world on how to approach marriage in a way that can make it work. It's just really about being open to something bigger than what your mind has been um, exposed to thus far. And that's some good points. Once again, listen to um, Focus Radio talking to uh, Casey Myers. And uh, going back a little bit to your military background, um, with this emphasis on learning, what was some of the things that you uh took from that experience that you still use to today? The biggest thing is um, being loyal, having honor, moving with integrity. Um, I think integrity is probably the biggest thing. Although you will encounter a lot of people in the military that might have questionable integrity, um, some of the core values of being a military service member is those things that I listed. And the other thing is probably the discipline. When I came up, I didn't have uh, a great parental guardianship over me. So I was kind of used to kind of moving at the beat of my own drum. Now, I still do that, but I learned how to structure my life in a more disciplined way. So now I have self-control. Now I have a little bit more temperance. 
And I just learned how to use my mind as a, uh, they formed my mind into a machine. Um, now I have control over the machine that the military made so that I can function at um, high pro productivity levels uh, when I am trying to work on things, whether it is in school, whether it's with my children or just my day to day business. I am a lot more focused than a lot of people that I have come up around or been around because of my military experience. It really sets you apart in ways that only people that have really been in the military would understand. That makes sense. And when you are helping your clients, I mean, like I said, you, you do a lot. I mean, people just go to spreakingfreedom.org. They can see a list and more information on all the things that you dive into. You talk about discipline and that is something that is very important. It's, it's funny because it's obvious, it's important, but it's like the very thing that we all, including myself, don't pay attention to. It's so easy to say, okay, I'm going to work out. And then before you know it, a whole year goes by and you barely <laughs> even did any exercise all year. So why do you think it's so hard just on a general uh, level to be committed to be disciplined and do with the things we desire to do in life? Now, if you really want me to be honest, I am not disciplined in the areas that other people think that I should be disciplined in. I don't work out regularly. I try to put myself on a regimen and a schedule to go walking and do things that help my endurance stay um, and my stamina stay up. But it's about really gravitating to what you feel passionate about. When you're gravitating to the things that you're passionate about, it's easy to find discipline because these are things that you're drawn to anyways. It's just a matter of being able to lock in your focus on the things that really matter. So whether it's um, being disciplined about parenting, being disciplined about whatever you believe your purpose is, it's easy for me to talk to people and help people um, even for free because that is something that I am passionate about. I remember not being understood. So it's easy to be disciplined with understanding others because I know where I came from. So it's it's really about Knowing yourself, setting goals, um, there's it takes discipline to set goals and follow through. That's probably the biggest thing that it takes discipline to do. And it's really um, like a lot of people talk about manifesting and speaking things into existence. But you can't do that without follow through. Um, you can talk and say you want to yeah. receive things and you want to do things. And all of that. But a lot of people drop the ball when the opportunity presents itself and then they don't do the thing that they said that they wanted to do. So the discipline is in really the follow through on what you said you wanted to accomplish. And that could be working out. That could be anything. But it's OK. 
I said I wanted this. Now, you're going to, it's almost like there is a saying, you know, you could ask God for a cake and God will give you the ingredients for the cake. But will you have the discipline to actually put everything together, bake it at the right temperature and do what needs to be done so that you actually get the cake? It's the same thing with manifesting. Manifesting is not just a wild like kind of like with religion and you just say the name and it just happens. It actually takes, okay, I'm going to plan this out. I'm going to do the things that leads to what I am shooting for. And then when the opportunity, when the ingredients are all present, I am going to follow through. And also with that, Someone might say, well, what if I don't get the results I was looking for? But what would your response be to that person? Would it would it be, well, hey, if you still stick with the process, you might find something that was meant to be? Really, honestly, um, what I decided to do after I got divorced um, in 2012, I decided that I would never experience the same exact thing, especially an unwanted desire more than once. So you might not have to change your whole plan. You might not have to do everything different. It might just be tweaking. Normally, we are able to recognize, oh, it was just this one thing that I might need to adjust a little bit. Or do just a little bit different so that it works better in my favor. But it's also about really learning to trust your intuition and then leaning into the way that your intuition leads you. Because a lot of times things will not work out perfect. But there's two things. I just was talking to somebody about this today. There's two things. You are either going to go in a way that you already know that something in the inside of you is telling you don't go that way and you're pushing your way through that way, or you're going to begin to go down a path, start a path, and it goes well, gets a little difficult, and then you are frustrated in the difficulty of you actually reaching your goals. Now, it takes a lot to say, you know what? I see that this is working. I see where provision is present. Now, how do I continue on and make minor adjustments so I actually reach this versus you going down something that you already feel shaky about? You kind of in your intuition, like I shouldn't do this. And then it doesn't work. That's because you already had a feeling that you shouldn't do it in the first place. So it's also about learning to trust your own intuition, learning to trust the voice inside of you. That's the God in you, the part of you that is suggesting good things and not the things that you know aren't going to lead to where you desire to be. It's it's intuition and it's um, knowing where you desire to go. So if you don't know where you want to go, then you end up anywhere. You just go down wherever things lead you. But if you already have goals in mind, then you're working towards something and you have a end goal so that you won't be distracted by everything. A lot of times we get off because we don't know what we want to do. 
We don't know where we want to go. We don't know who we we want to be. And so anything can get us off of the path that we should be on because we don't have any idea. We haven't sat down or we've we've thought about it, but we haven't written anything down. So a lot of times you have to buy you a notebook, write things down, write notes in your phone so that when the time comes and you're reminded of those, because a lot of times we might think about something, we don't realize it, but later on down the line, we were like, man, I was thinking about something like this, but because we didn't write it down, we have no point of reference to say, you know what? There it is. I need to do this or I need to do that. And you will find yourself guiding yourself from things that you've thought about previously. I like that last part, guiding yourself that you thought previously, because, you know, it's it's a metaphor. If I can if I can do it real quick, it's like if someone takes a trip somewhere and they're flying out. Well, it's not like they get the ticket and boom, they just vanish into their destination. It's like all these little checkpoints throughout the journey. And if you will, that can be similar with someone who says, okay, I'm going to start a business. Well, if you start your brand, start your business, it's not boom. It just, you vanish into like this successful world of like easy street. Well, that's wishful thinking because don't we all wish we were LeBron James or Steph Curry just, you know, being one of the elite They worked player. hard to get there. That didn't just, it wasn't just a voila. They didn't just wake up one day and were those players. Uh, Curry did not just wake up and he was shooting threes as a baby. He had to work. He continues to work. People like that, people like how Kobe used to talk about, he he worked when people weren't working. He was training when people were sleeping. So if you, it, it, it takes diligence to really pursue what you really want to do. It's, it's, even in the instances where people do, and it seems like, voila, they just made it. It takes so much to stay there because if you get there before you're ready to be there, then you won't know how to maintain that success. And you said it perfectly, and that is exactly what I was going at with with the metaphor with the with the plane and catching flight to wherever it is you try and catch your flight to, because we we so easily can get caught up in. Well, man, looking so so, man, they look like they just killing. It. it must be nice. Like, well, you might think it must be nice, but to your point, can you really handle the weight of success? Because success, like people will say, rent is due every day, whether you like it or not. And you have to ask yourself, is this what I want to do? Is this my passion? Because if it's your passion, then that will help sustain some of the hardships that will come with success yes success is it's it's a burden um in most cases because um, i don't want to say more money more problems but the more success you accumulate the more responsibility you have and if you don't know how to handle that responsibility and in today's society um most times success equals some type of fame, some type of attention. And that is a distraction in itself. 
And it can be very overwhelming. A lot of people that I coach are really people that are going into success and they're so overwhelmed that they need the coaching to just keep doing what you feel that you should be doing because that's what's going to get you to the other side. You're not going to get to the other side um, questioning yourself. You have to, once you know what you want to do, you really have to hold on tight to that. And then you have to learn along the way because if not, you won't be able to repeat those things that created your success. It kind of goes back to the earlier conversation when you uh, touched on discipline. Because mm-hmm. without that being present in anything you decide to do, I mean, just the simple task of driving your vehicle, it takes discipline to follow the traffic laws. You can't run red lights. You got to slow down. You got to stop by stop signs. It's, it's certain things you must do in order for you to even have an opportunity mm-hmm. to even get to the level that you're, you're, you're hoping to get to. That is so true. And, and it's a lot of defensive driving, but you've got to use your defense <laughs> mechanisms yeah. when you are pursuing business because there are going to be so many things that come to throw you off. Even when when I think about veterans and filing claims for disability, there are so many times that they'll deny you, they'll tell you no, they'll they'll give you a hard time. And I don't really understand why they give you a hard time, but if you're not strong enough in yourself, then you will be thrown off. You will quit the pursuit of reaching 100% or just getting rated a service connection for your disability, and you'll give up before you get to the goal. And they're hoping, a lot of people are hoping that you give up before you reach what it is that you're trying to get, because if you give up, you never obtain it. They'll never have to give you what you're worth. Man, once again, true honor talking to Casey Myers. Man, go to her website, speakingfreedom.org. I can't stand when time goes too fast, man, because I got another another show to do. But first and foremost, I'll let you have the floor real quick. What's your call to action for people who listen to this right now? How can they best get in touch with you and find out more about your services? You could go to my website, um, but there's also Speaking Freedom TV, which you can view on all streaming websites. I have books out um, on Amazon and on other audio uh, book websites. So just tap in. Um, Speaking Freedom is my... Make good mornings great with a Bowl of Brooks collection featuring cereal-inspired juice available in multiple styles. The collection delivers spoonfuls of nostalgia that will add flavor to your morning running routine. Start your day the Brooks way at Academy Sports and Outdoors. You are listening to I Am Refocused Radio with your host, Shamaya Reed. This show is designed to inspire you to live your purpose and regain your focus. And now, here's your host, Shamaya Reed. 
Hey, welcome to I Am Refocus Radio, man. We are here once again, and today we have another amazing show lineup for y'all. We're going to talk to our special guest today, Miss Kelly Moser, and she is not just an experienced business strategist, she is also a resilience and leadership speaker, and she also has an amazing show, Top 2% Podcast. Man, first and foremost... I want to talk about today's topic. It's going to be how to develop a truly resilient mindset as an entrepreneur. But we first going to learn a little bit more about Kelly. I just want to say welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful to be here. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Man, I'm doing awesome, man. It's, it's the weekend, so you know what that means. It's time to have some fun. <laughs> I know. Time to let the hair down. Right. Well, in my case, I'll just trim it and keep it short. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit about you before we uh, get into today's topic. Tell a little bit about your experience being a business strategist and also uh, being a coach. Yeah, absolutely. So I came out of school, went right into the business strategy world, not working for myself, but working for top, you know, Fortune 500 companies, working for mid-sized startups and fell in love with strategy, fell in love with setting a goal and helping a team arrive at that goal. So by the time I left my um, startup career as a strategist, I was leading a big team. I had helped grow the business, I think like five X helped grow in the business that much in a short amount of time. And I realized, you know, I have skills to do this on my own and bring my own spin to it, make it a little bit more holistic, make it a little bit more based in um, values and spirituality and, you know, a really grounded sense of who you are and let that be the catalyst that grows your business. So I ventured out on my own and I've been doing this for about four years now. And I really, I love it. It's been a real journey. It's, you know, entrepreneurship is not easy and everyone says that, but until you're actually in the shoes yourself, you don't really even know what that means. I don't think. I I did not expect the ups and downs of this roller coaster ride. So a big part of what I now coach people on, I support other entrepreneurs, um, you know, highly in demand creative people, people who are really doing their own thing and blazing their own trail. Those are the kinds of people I really like to coach. And the same themes come up over and over and over again. And the biggest one I think is the importance of building a a mindset that's really resilient because no matter what industry you're in, you're going to get knocked down and it's going to hurt unless you have the right kind of mindset really locked in. So that's kind of the, the crux of what I coach people on now. And it's, it's really fun. I'm very grateful to be able to do the work I do. And for you to be able to build a successful brand where you are solving problems, you're helping people break through their struggles that they're facing with. And that's part of the reason why they're using your expertise and and your value of being able to help them navigating that entrepreneurship and business world. What's some of the core values that you implement when you're helping with your clients as far as like the basics, the fundamentals to get the ball rolling? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think, you know, everyone has different goals. Some people are really in the headspace of, I want to grow as fast as possible. 
other people are more in the headspace of I'm, I've grown and I'm exhausted and I don't know what to do next because I'm totally burnt out and I'm falling out of love with this thing that I used to be so passionate about. So I think it really depends on where the person is coming in from, what their entry point into the work is. But I'd say a couple things that across the board you got to have are a real sense of what your values are as a person, not just as an entrepreneur, just not, not just as a brand, not just as a business, but at the end of the day, when your head hits the pillow, are you happy with the way you carried yourself throughout the day? Are you happy with the way you treated people? Are you happy with the way you showed up? Were you in integrity? And I think that's a step that a lot of people miss <laughs> in this work, especially when they're building a business. It's all about the KPIs. It's all about, you know, the 20, 100K months. It's We skip that foundational part. And for me, every single person I work with has to be connected with what those values are. Because if you're not, you're basically just like an untethered balloon flying through space. You, you might be successful, but eventually that lack of fulfillment and sense of purpose will catch up with you if you are not rooted in your values. So we get to that first. We figure out, you know, why did you, why are you doing this? And how do you want to show up in the world? What is out of alignment for you? What would it look like for you to be out of integrity? We want to make sure we understand what that looks like. Because a lot of times people are operating out of alignment and out of integrity without even realizing it. That's not their fault. It's just, they looked around, they saw what everyone else was doing. They tried to mimic it, copy it. I see a lot of people who are unhappy because they've built something that wasn't actually in alignment with their values, wasn't really in integrity for them, with their skills, with their gifts. So that's where we start first. And after that, the next thing we got to talk about is resilience. Because as you're making changes, as you're growing, you are going to get the wind knocked out of you at some point. And if you don't have that resilient mindset in place, you're going to make that experience extremely personal. You're going to take that very personally. It's going to mean something about your self-worth. And that's the last thing we want. That is like raising the glass of poison to your lips as an entrepreneur. So those are the two things that I would really say are the most fundamental when I start working with someone. We've got to, we've got to start there. And that's a good segue to when it comes to someone leading because that's that's a crucial point for anyone in any kind of inf who has any kind of influence mm -hmm. what was some of the characteristics of a of a good leader that is effective in mm -hmm. where they are that's a great question resilience for sure something that i've had to grow into a lot as a leader myself is i come from I have pleasing people, people pleasing tendencies. A lot of people do, especially the women I work with, a lot of people pleasers. And for a long time, for a lot of us, achievement is very closely connected with people pleasing. There was a parent we wanted to please through achievement. There were teachers we wanted to please through achievement. It's become this thing that gets us a lot of praise. And so we feel, feel very comfortable operating in that space of, hyper-independence, overachieving, giving too much without making sure our boundaries are locked in. 
So that's something that a lot of people need to be coached out of is this really deep, like interconnection between achievement and worth. So someone who's able to kind of dismantle that within themselves makes a great leader because you're not going to be liked all the time. This, if people pleasing is your top priority, if you're leading a team or you're leading a brand, you're just not always going to get that. And if your self-worth is too closely tied to your ability to please others, that's also a red flag um, for a leader. We want to make sure that those that you have a really healthy sense of what you need to do and an understanding that that might not always make you the most liked, but if you can stay in that integrity, if you can come back to your values, you're good. Even if people don't like you, that's okay. What we want to avoid is operating from a place where you're out of alignment and people don't like you, because then it means you're probably doing something that's just not in alignment with your values. So being able to kind of coach yourself through that is really important. And then I think just the ability to self-lead. I think there's a lot of people that look around for answers. And a big part of the work that I do with people is getting them to look inside for the answers, right? That's huge because there's nobody else out there exactly like you. Nobody else understands the vision that you have for what you're building, Nobody else has the exact same skill set, the exact same lived experience. And I think the more you can cultivate that sense of intuitively trusting your path, that's a huge, huge asset to an entrepreneur. So that's something that I think there's a level of that that can't be learned. I think there's a level of people that just you either have that kind of um, deep sense of self-trust but it's definitely something that can be cultivated over time with the right kind of tools and self-awareness. Another part of my background is I'm a meditation teacher. Meditation completely changed my life, saved my life, made my life a thousand times more fulfilling and, and richer. It gave me a, some sense of inner peace because I didn't have a sense of inner peace my entire life until I was like 20, in my early to mid-20s. And... It's just such a, that, that skill, bringing a lot of that self-awareness into my practice as I'm, co- as I'm helping people learn, you know, how to navigate their own path. Self-awareness is huge. Once again, listen on Refocus Radio, talking to our, our guest, Kelly Moser. And one thing that stuck out, I want to jump back on is when you mentioned self-leadership, like... I heard also like self responsibility, self accountability, like it's like checking your progress, but also like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, what am I actually doing? Cause you can listen to great minds like Gary Vee, Grant Cardone, like all these different people who are actually, you know, successful in doing things that you can strive for. But you as an individual, it does you no good if you listen to people like that, but you're not actually keeping yourself accountable with your checkpoints. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't think anyone really has the perfect blueprint of what you're doing except you. I think that's like a divinely whispered assignment. And if we're looking around too much, we end up just, it's just human nature. We just copy what other people are doing. And it ends up really hurting us a lot of the time. 
if we lose that sense of, you know, that navigation system coming from within. And that's good stuff, man. And when it comes to developing that mindset, when you're working with a client, an individual, what has been the pattern, if there is or has ever been one, where you see where they struggle the most when trying to uh, stay consistent with the new ideas, the new habits that they're trying to form? Mm. I think it becomes really obvious because that person complains about those things. It's the things that feel the least comfortable. It's the things that feel like they're not working. I'm just going to think of an example. So I have, I was chatting with a a client, coaching a client a couple of weeks ago, and she's developing a new service for the world that she really wants to bring out into her market. And she had in her mind that this was for a very specific kind of person, a very specific population. And it's not the population that she has built an incredible network in. She's got, she's got basically a decade of um, experience and connections in the health and fitness space. She's huge in the health and fitness space, but this, for some reason, she had this, she had this thing in her head that she wanted to bring forward and offer it to a totally different population of people. And it felt very hard for her. It felt like this was a big labor. And I asked her, why don't you just bring this service and apply this to the market where you already are so established and so influential? And she went totally silent. (laughs) She took like five long seconds of just thinking. And then she looked at me and she said, because that feels too easy. And I think that's something that a lot of us grapple with. We struggle with walking through the open doors. We would much rather like knock and knock and knock and bash our head against the wall, bash our head against the doors that are closed and shut really tightly. There's something within a lot of us that makes us think that if we've had to really fight for something, if we've had to really work hard for something, if we had to suffer, then it makes the outcome somehow more valuable. It makes it more worth it. It makes it sweeter. It makes us feel like more of a success. And that's a story that we're all just making up. It's okay. It's safe to walk through the open door. So back to your question, when I find that there's a pattern that I see all the time is people feeling too insecure and too unsure about following that inner sense of self-leadership that's saying, hey, go this way, because this is how you can really leverage. This is the path that'll let you leverage your natural gifts and your learned skills the best. And instead we're saying, no, I'm going to go this other way because this is what other people are doing. And the the manifestation of that is so obvious because people come in to, come to me and they're frustrated, they're burnt out, they're tired. They no longer feel connected to themselves. They don't feel connected to their mission anymore. And it's because they're not walking through the open doors. They're making things too hard. They're looking for reasons to struggle. And I know for a lot of us who've been through, you know, significant hardship in life or where we had to, we had to overcome challenges to survive. That's just the programming that we run on. I ha- in order to survive, I have to suffer. I have to work 10 times harder than everyone else. And that's very real for a lot of us in many situations. 
But when it comes to something like your business that you started and you get to choose how it looks and what you spend your time on, that doesn't have to be the story. So there's a lot of deconditioning, deprogramming and reprogramming that has to happen there that says, you know what? It can be easier. Walk through the open door. I guarantee there's an open door right now. There's some low-hanging fruit that you're just ignoring because it feels too easy. And when a individual is developing that strategy and that mindset to not just stay resilient, but also kind of what you're saying just before, you're not purposely making things harder than what they really need to be. Because when you're building a brand, you you mentioned values like sounds like that's a really core for for your uh your approach when you're dealing with clients you're, you're trying to search for that value mm-hmm. that that main thing that they can tap into and it doesn't even feel like work because when you have that core identity who you are is it's natural it flows it doesn't have to be and Michael Jordan doesn't have to be inspired to play basketball. Like he, mm-hmm. he just it flows. It's naturally exactly. there. When you're helping that person develop that mindset, why do we well better thing to ask is what's some of the reasons that could be possible why we always compare our business, our brand to our competitors Mm -hmm. and we worry about them and what they are doing versus just tapping into the core of of who we are with our business, our brand. That's such a good question. It's fear. It's fear that we are the only ones who don't have it figured out and everyone else has it figured out and we don't. And just from a psychological, neurological perspective, our brains are hardwired to keep us in keep us on the path keep us abiding by the status quo because we there's proof that that's safe we like evidence our brain likes evidence so if we're looking around at the results that other people are creating and there's a result there that we are interested in creating for ourselves our brain's going to say okay the natural pathway to that result is this path that this person is taking When in reality, there are infinite ways to get there. There are infinite ways to create that result. And if that pathway doesn't leverage your unique skills, your values, your natural gifts, your lived experience, that way is not going to be easier for you. It's going to be harder. It's going to be harder for you than it was for that person who probably created that success because that pathway did let them leverage their natural gifts and their skills. So I think it's a very natural thing that our brains do. We want to follow the safest path. Our brain's job is to keep us alive. And by, you know, looking around at what other people are doing, there's evidence there that this is a survivable path. Might not be the easiest path for me, but it's a path where I probably won't die. And that's literally the way our brain functions. So I think it's very natural And it just comes from fear. I don't know anything other than the path that I see that's spelled out, laid out before me is an unknown. 
and the unknown is really scary. But what I really try to encourage people to do is embrace the unknown and say, yeah, this, maybe there's not a blueprint here. Maybe there's not a ton of precedent for doing it this way. And maybe everyone else who's, you know, my competitors, the other people in my niche are doing it this other way. That doesn't necessarily mean that my way is wrong. It just means that my skills might be more conducive to me taking this path where all those other people might be living totally in alignment with their skills and values on the path that they chose. But it's okay if that's not for me. It's okay if I try something different. Experimentation is probably the the next huge value that I try to impart with my clients is that if you treat your business like an experiment, a science experiment, instead of a soap opera, you're going to see better results because the time it takes between when you get the crap kicked out of you and the next time you stand up and try again is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. When you treat your business like a soap opera, you're down and out for sometimes days or weeks or months at a time when something goes wrong because you make it about you. Mm-hmm. And a scientist doesn't walk into an experiment with any attachment to the outcome. They just walk in saying, this is valuable for me to experience whether it turns out to be a success or not. And I think there's so much value in even the experiences that don't work out. Yeah. I have a funny joke with that because it's like if someone were to eat no name of fast food, this picture is your favorite food to go to. Mm-hmm. The chef or the person cooking, right? They, they're they not tasting your food for you and say, oh man, that was amazing. It's usually the other side. They will let you know the feedback. And what I'm trying to get to at that point is, is it possible that we are trying to experience our brand more so than the people we're trying to market to? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think what you're saying makes so much sense. And one of the things about the way our brains work is that we love little dopamine kicks that make us feel worthy and valuable. And I think a lot of times people end up building a brand or building a business that doesn't actually serve its original purpose, but has become this like addictive dopamine kick that we just, it, it becomes very self-serving rather than serving the people that we actually set out to help in the first place. Hmm. Yeah, I just learned some stuff right there. Man, once again, listen, I'm Focus Radio talking to our guest, Kelly Moser. You also have a podcast, and I think I named your podcast wrong. You're actually, your podcast is top 2% in the global world space. But when it comes to the name of your podcast, tell us about your show. Yeah. The name is The Aligned Success Show with Kelly Moser. And I named it that because I wanted it to attract people who weren't just looking for the quickest buck. I wanted to attract people who really were values-driven, right? Aligned success, not just the textbook definition of success, but the definition of success that you created (laughs) that means something to you that isn't arbitrary, that's actually deeply meaningful and connected to who you are and how you want to show up in the world. So I have to ask this last question before I let you go. 
someone listening right now, they can look at your website. Your your website is 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 easy. It's KellyMoser.com. They look at your social media. They see you doing all these quote unquote big things. But what was one or a couple of things that you personally had to overcome before you start seeing yourself and your brand grow? Mm. So many things. So many things. I think crippling self-doubt, you know, wondering, am I on the right path? Wondering, does anybody care about this? Is anyone going to respond to this? Am I good enough? All those things. And it's interesting that all of those things are now what I coach on because I get it. I'm, you know, I wasn't born. I have a certain level of, I have my, I'm a Leo. So I have a certain level of confidence about me that has always been there. But when it comes to this new arena of being an entrepreneur, that confidence gets squashed really fast. And I was living for a long time, first couple of years in my business, as if my business was a soap opera and every little failure, I mean, as small as someone unsubscribing from my email list would send me into this like emotional spiral of self-doubt. And I had to really kind of dig my way out of that and embrace. So I've been my own best client. (laughs) I embraced that spirit of experimentation and resilience first. And that's really when I got over the emotionality, when I let things not be so emotional, that's when I started to be able to bounce back faster, be more nimble, be more creative, be more strategic and be more resilient. And that's honestly when things started to take off much more when I let it not mean anything about me and my personal value when something didn't work out. So before we uh, sign off, one more last question, I promise. When a person who decides, okay, I want to start my brand or okay, I want to revamp my brand. I want it to be more exciting because it got dull. I need to grow, you know, self-leadership, all that stuff and, and push forward and all that great stuff. So it's part of this successful path is us just committing to our choices and taking action on our goals because no matter what happens, we still make a choice. We either quit or we keep going. What's your opinion on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really think the only way that you can fail is if you quit without really feeling ready to quit. Sometimes it's okay to walk away from things. I think that we should normalize walking away from something that really turned out to be just, it was just meant to be a temporary thing that I got to experience. But the only true way you can fail is if you walk away before your heart really wants to. And anything else, there's no such thing as a dead end. As long as your head is still in the game and your heart's still in the game, you're still in the game. There's there's no such thing as a dead end as long as you decide that that's not your last day. Man, once again, kellymoser.com is the place you can go. 
check out her podcast. She's on social media, but podcast again is the Alliance Success Show. You can catch her, man, everywhere. I mean, you're doing big things. I'm gonna have you on Refocus Radio. Uh, I'm pretty sure you're gonna be doing some amazing things in the future. What else, if we haven't covered anything that you want our audience to know, if there's any additional resources or any call to action you, you want them to, to follow up on? Thank you so much for having me. Just my last, my call to action is just would love to meet you. Would love to just connect with you guys. So if you're hearing, if anything.